energy. The guy told me I was no spring chicken anymore, and that's why my ankle was still hurting. I'm 33, not 133. The passion. The Red Sox handling of Xander Bogarts is a complete organizational failure. The opinions on all your favorite teams. No, not this year, but it's next year where Bill Belichick ends up on the hot seat. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEB AM, FM, and WDEBradio.com. What's up, everybody? Brady Farkas Show back at it here on a Thursday on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEBradio.com. We go up until 645, then it's high school hoops coverage here on the Friendly Pioneer. Girls basketball, Harwood at Montpelier. Our own Brent Curtis on the call already courtside there. Hope all of, hope all of you drive safe tonight home from various high school athletic events around the state or the UVM hoops game on the men's side. We know the snow is coming in, so do get where you're going safely. Buster only of ESPN will talk with us here at 545. Spring training is less than a month away. Let's go. Sox make another move late last night. We'll talk about that. And the Patriots are officially heading to Germany next season. I've already got a good idea of who they might be playing when they go overseas. You can get in on the Napa-Morrisville, Napa-Waterbury text line, 802-585-3026. That's your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. Everybody, let go! Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts on the Brady Farkas Show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber. They are Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber, and they are online at sixandstuff.com. So UVM is playing Maine tonight at Patrick Gym. That's going to be the first Catamount home game in a while. Two-game losing streak. Catamounts are 2-2 two and two inside league play. They're in desperate need of a win. You know that, and I know that, right? So, And Maine is 0-4. This should be a win, but I'm at the point with this Catamount team where nothing is a given. UVM still has to play well. They can't just show up and win. Not this team, not now, and not anymore. So it should be a win. Catamounts need a win, but it's not a guaranteed win. But I think tonight for UVM, I don't think actually I know. With UVM tonight, I am looking for one thing. Right, we can we we can talk about every aspect of the game: shooting, rebounding, defense, etc. Foul shoot. We can talk about all that. Let's cut through everything tonight when UVM plays Maine. I'm looking for one thing, and I'm looking for John Becker to impart one message tonight, and that is that Dylan Penn needs to take over. That's what I want to see. I want Dylan Penn to force the issue tonight. Now, I don't want him to take a million bad shots. Don't get it misconstrued. But I want Dylan Penn to be the focal point tonight. And John Becker needs to impart that message. That needs to be the game plan. Dylan Penn as the focal point. This Catamount team needs Dylan Penn. They cannot be good without Dylan Penn putting up numbers. And tonight, he needs to put up numbers, and he needs to be given chances to put up numbers. And John Becker needs to nudge him and encourage him to do just that. That It's that simple, right? We, we, we will come in tomorrow, and we'll talk about the game, and we'll break down all the stats, etc. 
But at the end of the day, I'm looking for one thing. When we come in tomorrow, I want to know one thing. Did Dylan Penn take over? Because that's what this team needs. They lack offense. Dylan Penn is this team's most dynamic offensive player. Aaron Deloney is their best shooter. Aaron Deloney is their guy that can get the hottest. But Dylan Penn is their most dynamic player. He's their most dynamic scorer. He can finish at the rim. He can finish with both hands. He can play down low. He can slash. He can get to the foul line. All of that needs to be on display from this point forward, and it starts tonight. It's that simple. This game, to me, does not come down to rebounding margins. It doesn't come down to assist to turnovers. It doesn't come down to three-point shooting percentage. It comes down to can and did Dylan Penn take over because that's what this team needs, and that's what they need moving forward if they want to get where they want to go if they're going to get where they want to go. Dylan Penn is averaging 11.5 points per game. Of course, that's not terrible. Anytime you're at Division One, averaging in double figures, that's not terrible. But this team needs more. It needs him to start getting 18 to 20. This team, that's what it calls for. Last year's team wouldn't have. Last year's team had more scoring. It had more guys that could get a bucket. This year's team does not have that. They need Dylan Penn to push the issue. 11 and a half is fine. This team doesn't need fine. This team needs great. And 18 to 20 would be great. UVM has played four conference games right now. Four games inside America East play. Dylan Penn's been under 10 points in three of them. They cannot have that. They cannot have that. Now, I don't know if that low output in conference play is because other teams are solely keying on him. I don't know if it's because he's the new guy. He doesn't want to ruffle any feathers and kind of try to go above and beyond. But he needs to force the issue, and he needs to do it tonight. The Atlantic Sun is a better conference than the America East, and last year Dylan Penn averaged 17 points per game. 17 points per game. He's clearly capable. He just needs to do now. And they need him to force the issue. I want Dylan Penn to get the ball. I want him to get the ball early. I want them to force it to him early. I want him to attack early. I want to see him at the line early. And I want to see him be a playmaker early. He's got it in him. We've seen spurts. We've seen non-conference games where he's done it. But we haven't really seen it in league play. They need him to be the guy. There's no other way around it. Robin Duncan is the leadership guy. He can be the rebounding guy. They need him. Finn Sullivan can be the, 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 the distributor guy. Matt Verretto can be the energy guy. And Aaron Deloney can be the I-can-get-hot guy. But Dylan Penn needs to be the guy. And he needs to be the guy every night if this team wants to win an America East Conference championship, if they want to win the regular season title. For me, it's that simple. Can Dylan Penn take over. That's a lot of pressure on a new guy. But he's got it in him, and this team needs it. If Deloney was getting 15 a game and Finn was getting 14 a game like I thought and Hurley was healthy enough to go and get 7 or 8 and Fiorilla was here, maybe Penn wouldn't have that pressure. But those things aren't happening. The thing that can save UVM in league play is Dylan Penn. If you think I'm wrong, let me know, 802-585-3026. But I don't think that I am. That's what this team needs. Maine is 0-4. 
it should be a victory. Dylan Penn should be able to do the things that I just outlined, and he should be encouraged to do it because this team needs it. That's what I want to see most, but there is something else that I want to see tonight because I was talking earlier in the week with Coach Brennan. He said something that kind of spurred my kind of got my mind into overdrive. Here's what Coach Brennan said earlier. But this is not – I don't think this is a great Vermont team. I don't think that for a minute. But it's certainly capable. They played their their, their hearts out. They um, – you know, they I, I do believe that they feel like there's some measure of, uh, you know, you better – you got to do it because we're Vermont, and Vermont has been good for so long. Tonight, Dylan Penn is number one, but number two – is I want to see that obligation to be good that Coach Brennan mentions. I want to see that pride. I want to see the sense of urgency in, oh, we can't be the team to blow this. I can't. I, I don't. I don't want to be the team that blows the chance to get the number one seed. I want to see that pride, and that needs to come from Robin Duncan. Dylan Penn needs to be the on the court scorer tonight. Robin Duncan has to be the leader who imparts that urgency. He's already a good leader. He's even got to step it up. He's the guy who clearly has the most pride in this program. He's the most invested in this program. His family's been around UVM for a decade. Two other brothers who played here. Green and gold is in his blood now. He needs to get people to his level. His level of pride. His level of emotion. His level of caring. That's what this team needs also. Coach Brennan talks about, oh, I think the players have an obligation or feel an obligation to be good because Vermont's always good. I want to see that too. If this team comes out and Dylan Penn gets 18 and they play with a real sense of urgency, they will win this game tonight by double figures. If Dylan Penn gets seven and they kind of sleepwalk through it, this game is going to be a game far longer than it should be. You Maine is getting better. They are 0-4 in the league, but they are getting better. Okay, They beat Boston College out of the ACC. They lost to Harvard by a point in overtime, I believe. They only got beat by UMass Lowell by two, I believe, who beat UVM by 15. So if you sleepwalk through things and Dylan Penn gets 6, 7, or 8, like he's been doing the last three games in league play, this game is going to be a game and you're going to be walking out of there scratching your head saying, what did I just watch? I want to see the pride in that uniform. Text on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line, 802-585-3026. Nate in Westford. Brady, you mentioned Penn. What about Aaron Deloney? Aaron Deloney's an interesting case, too. Now, he's averaging 12 a game, right? He's averaging 12. I said he needed to average 14 a game. So he is close to doing what I asked. But he's been kind of Jekyll and Hyde, and that was our worry at the beginning of the year, right? I want to see Aaron Deloney be consistent. right? He's got seven games under 10 points. He can get 32 at the drop of a hat, and he can get six, and he can get eight. And I just want to see him be consistent. It was my biggest worry coming into the year. I got away from it because I got enamored with the 32-point game on opening night. And now I'm back to worrying about it. I want to see him be consistent because, I mean, his shooting his shooting has not been consistent, right? 
Three of the last four games, he's gone three of 17 combined from three. He was five of seven against Brian. The other three, Brian, against the other three games in uh, in America East play, three of 17. I want to see him be consistent. I want to see him get 14 or 15 a night every night. I don't want to see 30 one night and zero the next. I want to be able to count on him to get me 15 a night. It's been too Jekyll and Hyde for me. 11 one game, 18 the next. 7 one game, 14 the next. 6 one game, 19 the next. I, I, I'm okay with 14 a game. I just want to see it on a regular basis. But Penn is still the story tonight. Dylan Penn is the story tonight. Uh, we're going to get Buster Olney here in a, in a couple of minutes talking baseball with us. But uh, I do want to give a shout-out to the UVM women's hoop team. They beat Maine last night, and that is a great win. Congratulations to Elisa Kresge and her team. I don't know if you've been following the America East women's schedule yet, but you should be. UVM hasn't won at Maine in more than a decade. Maine hadn't lost yet in league play. They were 4-0. Maine, along with Albany, has run the conference for as long as I've been following the conference, which is the last seven years or so. UVM goes on the road, goes to Maine, a long trip, a tough place to play at the pit, and wins that game by nine. I mean, that is a culture win for Elisa Kresge. That is a season-defining league win for her team. Three players in double figures. Catherine Gilwe, the local product, has a contribution, has seven points as well. This is an exciting time. This is an exciting time for UVM women's athletics. And I know that I'm as guilty of it as anybody talking men's hoops and men's hockey, but the UVM women's basketball team is now 4-2 and two in league play and just had a great win. And the UVM women's hockey team is 11-6-1 inside Hockey East play, and they've been nationally ranked the entire year. This is an exciting time at UVM when it comes to female athletics. And you should get on board. I should get on board. And I am. Elisa Kresge, UVM women's basketball coach, is going to join us tomorrow at 545. And uh, we're going to talk with her about that win over Maine. So we, we, tomorrow we will break down the men's game that starts here at about 75 minutes at 7 o'clock at Patrick Gym. But we're also going to talk a little women's hoops for the first time this year in, in real depth with Elisa Kresge. So a great win. By the way, tomorrow, UVM Women's Hockey, it's the Pack the Gut Challenge. The bad weather should be out of here in plenty of time. 6 o'clock tonight at the gut, or uh, tomorrow night at the gut, I should say. 6 o'clock tomorrow night at the gut. They want to fill that barn, and it's a really good team in UVM. They're taking on Holy Cross. Again, the Catamounts are 16-8-1 uh, overall, 11-6-1 in league play. They're looking to get a top-two seed inside the Hockey East playoffs and have home games all the way throughout the semifinals. Jim Plumer and his team imploring you to come out and watch the Pack the Gut Challenge is tomorrow night. I spoke with Coach Plumer about it. That interview is on the Brady Farkas Show podcast channel. Right now, we got Buster Olney coming up. All the insight into everything going on in baseball. It's time for our weekly conversation with ESPN Baseball Insider and Vermont native, Buster Olney. I'm just about ready to bet the family farm in Vermont. On the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, Buster is called in. We've got him queued up on hold here. Buster with us every single Thursday at this time on the Brady Farkas Show. And I got to say, I saw the graphic today. We are 70 days out exactly from opening day. And I believe 
We are 29 days away from pitchers and catchers reporting, so we are inside one month until pitchers and catchers. Buster, I'm starting to get the itch. I'm starting to get the spring training itch. Are you? Yes, uh, and it does feel like that, that we need spring training, the lure of spring training, the hope of spring training on the horizon when we get into mid-January. And, and I know it's cold back there. I live in Montana now, and you know we're talking about waking up and it's 10 degrees <laughs> every morning. And, yeah, so the idea of having some sunshine in Florida, that sounds great. That absolutely sounds great. Uh, there's actually been a lot of stuff with the Red Sox this week. I want to get to that momentarily, but I actually want to start on the World Baseball Classic. And just in that, I saw most of the preliminary rosters yesterday for a lot of the countries that project to be really good. These are loaded rosters at the World Baseball Classic. The U.S. team's loaded. The Dominican team is loaded. Puerto Rico is loaded. It just seems like, is there more interest in playing this year among major leaguers, among marquee major leaguers than there's been in the past? Because this seems like the best overall field I can remember. I would agree with you 100%. And when you see the loaded rosters, it reflects the interest that players increasingly have in this event. And I got to tell you, when they started it, at the outset, I thought it was one of those, uh, you know, one of those ideas that was going to go away within a, a, a few years. Because I know how much teams privately can't stand it. You know, the general managers and the managers, I think, would prefer to have the players in their camps, um, you know, players who they're paying. Um, but I think in the end, uh, it's becoming standard operating procedure for players to participate, and I think it'll be a great celebration of baseball. Look, if you know, if you ask the question, which game is going to have more interest? Uh, uh, you know, a, a spring training, sleepy spring training game in early March, or a WBC matchup between, say, you know, Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic, and you know how loaded those lineups are. I think we can safely agree that uh, it would be the latter. So the WBC, I think, is doing exactly what Major League Baseball hoped that it would do. Yeah, and Japan looks loaded as well. Otani's going to play for them. Venezuela looks really good. So, yeah, there there could be, you know, six, seven teams with completely loaded rosters. Uh, Buster, you wrote a big story last week that uh, we've kind of talked about the idea of the automatic strike zone and, we're getting closer to that. The automatic strike zone is going to be around in all AAA stadiums this year. It's getting closer and closer to the majors. Yeah, and the way that it's going to be used in AAA, it's not just a pure robo-umpire calling all balls and strikes. They're actually going to split the game 50-50 with two different hmm. systems. One is the, the robo-umpire with the all balls and strikes being determined by that system. But the other is, I think, the system that's going to be used in Major League Baseball sometime in the near future. Uh, and that is a challenge system. They had that in the, the Florida State League last year. It had a lot of supporters. Folks really liked it. They liked the strategy that going into every game, the pitcher, uh, you know, each team had three uh, potential challenges of a ball strike call made by a, a human umpire. And then, like in tennis, they used the electronics to, uh, you know, to back that up. And, and so some strategy comes into it. And on top of that, I think a lot of folks in baseball really, uh, you know, like the idea of retaining the catching position, protecting yeah. the catching position, because if you go to a pure robo-umpire, then what you're going to have is a complete change in that spot. And so all these great nuances uh, at that position that have been developed through the years by the Molina brothers, 
you know, by Carlton Fisk, by others, um, you know, those would all go away. And so I think that's the system that ultimately gets first used in MLB. Buster Olney, ESPN MLB Insider with us here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Look, Red Sox did have an interesting week. They signed Adam Duvall. They signed Rymel Tapia uh, last night, early this morning. So they got some depth in the outfield. Let's start on Duvall. I, I like this move. I mean, I don't think the Red Sox are winning the World Series because of it, but it's a guy who hit 38 home runs and won a gold glove in 2021. It seems like he can lock down center field and put Kike Hernandez in the infield, and the Sox are overall better up the middle. What's your read on that move? Yeah, and I checked with Red Sox people earlier in the week about Kike Hernandez and what his uh, regimen is this offseason, and they say that on a daily basis he's always taking ground balls in the infield. So if they need him at shortstop, he's going to be prepared to do that. Um, you know, with Duvall, I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the signing. I think it's a good, uh, you know, low-risk, potentially high-reward signing. You're talking about a guy who, you know, a couple of years ago, 34 homers, 113 RBI, you know, part of the Braves championship team. Uh, last year, injury played. He's 34 years old, and it might be that, you know, he struggles again. It might be that we've seen the best of, of, of Adam in his career but on the other hand, I like the fact that they're trying. You know, if you're Alex Corey, your big concern at the moment is I got to rebuild the middle of my lineup because yeah. you lost JD Martinez, you lost Andrew Bogarts, and so the question is around uh, Rafael Devers, who's going to generate power, who's going to generate offense, and Duvall has a chance to be one of those guys. Yoshida, Duvall, Verdugo, Tapia. Duran and Kike, who can play in the outfield. That's six people who can play in the outfield. You don't need all six. Do you think the Red Sox are looking to make a move here somewhere? Maybe shipping out Duran, maybe even Verdugo potentially. Boy, uh, you know, and and it's an interesting question, but I feel like that in you know all the cases of the incumbents, you're you're talking about selling low. Like Verdugo, I, I personally think is a good major league player. But he didn't have a spectacular year last year. And if you're going to move him, uh, I think you're probably not going to get a ton in return. Duran, yeah, as you know, his stock fell dramatically last year. You know, major questions developing about, you know, whether or not he's ever going to be a good defensive outfielder, whether or not he can play center field. He needs to establish himself in the big leagues before he actually gets any value. Um, so I, I think it's more of a case of, look, we're going to, you know, besides protecting ourselves against injuries, we're going to have a lot of different candidates. We're going to go to spring training. We'll see who looks good. We'll see who doesn't look good. And then we'll be in a position to, you know, to potentially react. I think it's good that they have different options. What would you rather the Red Sox do at shortstop? Would you like to see Kike at short? Or do you want to see them sign an Elvis Andrews, a Jose Iglesias type, someone of that vein, and so Kike can play second, and then Christian Arroyo can kind of be the super utility guy? I'd rather they try Kike there if they hmm. feel like he can be, you know, close to average. Because here's the thing, and I know shortstop is a crucial defensive position, their lineup looks like it has a chance to be really bad. Hmm. Like, a, like one of the worst Red Sox lineups that we've seen and if they're going to be productive, I think they have to, you know, get a decent amount of production from all spots, right? Um, which is why I think, you know, you add a Justin Turner, who at this age in his career, he's not going to be a dynamic performer, but he's a good offensive player. Devers, obviously, is the key to the, you know, their lineup. Yoshida is someone who, as you know, doesn't necessarily hit for a lot of power, but he gets on base. 
it's got to be a sum of the parts offense. Uh, and I think that, you know, if you were to bring in a, a shortstop who you know based on history and Elvis uh, Andrews and Andrelton Simmons, uh, that sort of guy, then you're basically seeding the position. And they're already kind of doing that at catcher. Yeah. And I don't know if in the American League East you can do that in two spots. You know, Buster, I um... – I think well, there's obviously a big argument about you know why the Red Sox are in the position that they're in, but since they are here, I think they're handling things right in that I think they are signing enough major league players that they are hoping to hit lightning in a bottle and be contenders in 2023, kind of like they were in 2021. But if but they've signed enough short-term deals that if they're not contenders, I think they have a lot of tradable assets on this roster when you get towards the deadline to help for the future. Do you see it that same way in terms of their plan? Some. Uh, you know, I see it some. I do think the, you know, the, the two-year investments effectively in Kenley Jansen and Justin Turner don't necessarily fit that, uh, you know, but, uh, I, and you and I have talked about, you know, the effort to upgrade the bullpen, and now they feel like that that would, could be a help. But there's no doubt if the Red Sox struggle in the first half of the year, they can pull the ripcord and bail on 2023 pretty quickly yeah. based on their financial obligations. And if you do have tradable assets, whether it's some of these guys they signed this winter or maybe other guys in the roster – you can pivot to that pretty quickly. And I think you and I, you know, uh, would agree that any reasonable mind would look at, you know, the Yankees roster, the, the Blue Jays roster, the Rays roster, the Orioles roster, and say there's a chance that that's uh, what Bloom is going to be doing sometime in August. You know, I'm reading MLB trade rumors last night, and it says Red Sox have received significant interest in Tanner Houck. And yeah. I can obviously make the case for moving Houck and trying to get better pieces for 2023. But I also think the Red Sox have so many questions in the rotation. I can't be moving on from a guy who's got five years of team control when I don't think that I'm one piece away from being good this year. I'd hold on to Hauk. What do you think? Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, the one thing that I don't really know is, you know, where is the relationship between the team and the player Yeah. Um, you know, now? After two years ago, you know, they basically service time manipulated him, kept him in the minor leagues. Um, you know, last year, you know, some, dis- some other disagreements. I kind of wonder where that relationship is. And, and let's face it, you know, I mean, you read a story like that. Red Sox have received significant interest. And, well, there's only one or two people in the world who actually know whether or not that's true. Hmm. And so the fact that it's clearly coming from within the Red Sox organization, I think tells you, you know what, uh, they, they might be trying to goose uh, Goose's market to hmm. flip him. Well, we will see what happens. But, yeah, we are 29, 30 days away from pitchers and catchers reporting. I think the Sox first game is either February 23rd or February 25th. Buster, you're going to be out in Arizona this year, right, now that you're on the West Coast. When's the last time you were in an Arizona spring training? Oh, I, I you know, every year. Oh, okay. Uh, I go for a stretch of time. Stretch of time. You know, I don't go uh, and just stay for seven weeks. I'll probably come and go about, uh, you know, three, four times. We've got some exhibition games we're going to have on television early i got to get prepared for those. Then I'll be in Florida in mid-March and uh, go and see teams. We get closer to the start of the season. And then uh, probably finish up spring training in Arizona uh, you know, to, uh, to get ready for you know, our first games. Well, you can uh, just, just plop yourself in Peoria and watch the Mariners and report back to me. I, 
I know that that is a team of great hope, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> that's, well, yeah, it's a great, great hope sitting in this room, that's for sure. Buster only, ESPN MLB Insider. Buster, we appreciate you, and uh, we'll talk next week. Okay, Brady, thank you. Absolutely, thank you. Buster only, simply the best. Every single Thursday with us, uh, beginning at 545 on DEV, we do have Buster only with us talking baseball. Spring training now less than a month away. I really am getting the itch, like – we got snow tonight. It's good. We got snow coming up on Sunday, it sounds like. I mean, look, and I'm fine. I like winter, and we haven't really had winter this year. So I'm excited to get some snow tonight, too. But I'm starting to get the baseball itch. And I know the Red Sox don't profile to be great, but I'm excited for them to get to Fort Myers, for us to talk about what's going on, to see what new guys might open some eyes, to see how the guys do in the World Baseball Classic. So I'm I'm getting ready for it. and And I hope that you are, too, because – Again, we're going to be talking pitchers and catchers in 29 days or so. And uh, it's hard to believe because it feels like just yesterday I'm watching Astros-Phillies World Series. It feels like just yesterday. But here we are. We're ready to flip the calendar and ready to start doing it again and hope springs eternal. And even for the Red Sox, hope springs eternal. A few things Buster said really stuck out to me. So we're going to get the CBS News update and then – Our staff's going to cut up the interview as fast as they possibly can, and I'm going to tell you three things from Buster's interview that really stuck out to me. One includes the Red Sox, and a couple include baseball in general. I'll tell you what those are next. After CBS News, you're on the Brady Farkas Show right now on WDEV AM and FM. Ricks, CBS News. Think you know sports better than Brady does? Text in with your thoughts at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Thanks to Buster Olney, our ESPN MLB insider, for being with us as he is every single Thursday at 545. Reminder, we go up until 640 today because at 645 we've got girls high school basketball coverage between Harwood and Montpelier. Reminder also, by the way, when the full show is over, you can download our full show podcast. You can do that every day and get all of our exclusive interviews. Just search for the Brady Farkas Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at WDEVradio.com. All right, I want to recap our Buster Olney interview here. A couple of things really stood out to me. We were able to cut up the audio in the commercial break. The Red Sox cannot trade Tanner Howard. Right there, definitively, I am telling you, the Red Sox cannot trade Tanner Howard. Earlier in the offseason, I would have been in favor of doing this. But now... This team cannot afford it. I don't know exactly what Hauk is for this team this year, next year, the year after, but I know that he needs to stay with the Boston Red Sox. The Red Sox are far away from contention, right? I think we all admit that. The Red Sox don't look like they're going to be very good. They don't profile to be real high up in the American League standings. Buster Olney says they're going to have one of their worst lineups in a long time. So my question is this. If you truly are that far away from contention, then why would you trade a long-term asset for a short-term upgrade? Right? Like, if you're not one piece away, why are you trading a guy who has a future for a guy who probably doesn't? I mean... 
earlier in the offseason, when I was laying out my plan for the Red Sox, I was trying to go for it this year. I was trying to go for it all this year. And under that scenario, Tanner Houck would have been expendable. But with the where the Red Sox are now, he's not expendable. I need him for the future because the future looks brighter. Right? Earlier in the offseason, I was like, sign Carlos Rodon, sign Justin Verlander, go after this guy, go after that guy. And if you're looking, like last year the Mets traded for Chris Bassett, right? Chris Bassett had one year left on his deal. So the Mets gave up some long-term assets to go for it last year, and that's worth it because that's where they were last year. They thought they were going for the World Series, so I endorsed that move. If the Red Sox were acting similar this offseason, I would have endorsed trading Hauk to go out and get this year's version of, of Chris Bassett, but the Red Sox aren't acting that way. The Red Sox are acting like the, the present is a hope and a prayer, and the future is where we're really putting all our you know putting all of our eggs in that basket. So if the future is where the where the eggs are going, Tanner Houck can be part of the future. He has five years left of team control. Why am I trading a five years a guy with a five year contract for a guy with a one year contract when that guy I get likely doesn't help me make any difference in the standings this year? It's just not worth it. The five years Tanner Houck is now more valuable, that he has is now more valuable to me than the one year that I'm going to get from somebody I trade for. It's just it's just that simple. Long term is what matters for the Red Sox. Tanner Houck will be here in the long term. Done. And by the way, he helps in the short term as well. He's insurance for all my rotation question marks. If Chris Sale gets hurt, Tanner Houck steps in. If Brian Bayo isn't good and isn't ready, Tanner Houck steps in. If Garrett Whitlock gets hurt again, Tanner Houck steps in. If James Paxton can't pitch, Tanner Houck steps in. So Tanner Houck is helpful to me in 2023. If not in the rotation, then in the bullpen. So he's helpful to me this year, but he's valuable to me in the future. Trading for this year's Chris Bassett doesn't do me any good. The Red Sox are not good enough to do that move. If they had operated like I wanted them to, then they would have been. Now, Buster things that the Red Sox might be trying to trade out. And, and let's face it, you know, I mean, you read a story like that, Red Sox have received significant interest, and, in, well, there's only one or two people in the world who actually know whether or not that's true, hmm. and so the fact that it's clearly coming from within the Red Sox organization, I think tells you, you know what, uh, they, they might be trying to goose uh, Goose's market to hmm. flip him. Yeah, I mean, look, Buster's, Buster's probably right about that, right? The team puts out a story in hopes of drumming up interest so they can get somebody to massively overpay. Maybe the Red Sox would trade Hauk if they got a massive overpay, right? If they got a team's top prospect who had six years of team control, well, then I might feel differently. But what I'm not in favor of is trading him for a short-term asset this year. I think the Red Sox need to keep Tanner Hauk. Unless you're getting a top prospect who has a full boat of six years, then, then Hauk is more valuable to me than as a trade piece. Uh, moving on with Buster Olney. I like what Buster said about the idea of the strike zone challenge system. Look, I fought this battle for a while. I am in favor of human umpires. I am in favor of the human element. I don't want 
a robot calling balls and strikes. I don't. I like the human element of sports, and I know that humans aren't perfect, and I know there are bad calls, and I know we get mad at bad calls. I get it. I like what Buster said as an alternative. Not a robot strike zone, but a challenge system. Uh, and that is a challenge system. They had that in the you know, Florida State League last year. It had a lot of supporters. Folks really liked it. They liked the strategy that going into every game, the pitcher, uh, you know, each team had three uh, potential challenges of a ball strike call made by a, a human umpire. And then, like in tennis, they used the electronics to, uh, you know, to back that up. And, and so some strategy comes into it. That seems like a perfect compromise, right? And that that's what, I, from this point forward, that is what I will endorse. The machines are coming to the strike zone. This seems like a way to mitigate it to a degree or to make it not full-fledged. You don't want all human umpires where the guys can get – you don't want Angel Martinez missing a bunch of calls a game. Fine. I don't want an entirely robot strike zone. In the middle, we put it. The tennis system is perfect. I don't know if you're watching tennis right now. The tennis system is perfect. The players get a certain number of challenges. They play. There's a human line judge sitting up above, calls the ball in or out, and if the player disagrees, they point up, the the thing happens quickly, the ball goes on the screen, you see it, the whole crowd goes, oh, and then it shows you where the ball landed, and now on we play. The whole thing takes about 15 seconds. It's not the NFL where there's a three, five-minute delay. So I, this is what I will endorse moving forward. It is the perfect compromise. It doesn't take out the human element. It doesn't. You know, it does allow the calls to be right more often, and the challenges that you don't—you have a determined number of them. It's not you can't do it on every pitch, and the challenge system doesn't take long. So that to me is perfect. There is strategy of when to deploy your challenges and when to save it. You want to do it at the first. You want to give them not use one till the sixth. You want to save them all for the ninth. I think that's important, and I, I think that Buster's right also in saying that. It's important to keep the nuances of the catcher position, right? I mean, the catcher position is important defensively. Under a fully robot system, all you need to do have is a guy who can catch. The other things don't matter. And I, I want the other things to matter. Okay, framing a pitch, calling a game, trying to steal a strike, going down to one knee. All of that stuff should matter. And under the challenge system, it will. So from this point forward... That is what I am going to endorse. 802-585-3026. And finally, my last takeaway from Buster, the kind of last overarching part that stuck away that stuck with me is the World Baseball Classic is going to be a great showcase for baseball. I am very excited for it. And I think Buster is right. It's doing exactly what it was intended to do. I would agree with you 100%. And when you see the loaded rosters, it reflects the interest that players increasingly have in this event. And I got to tell you, when they started it at the outset, I thought it was one of those, uh, you know, one of those ideas that was going to go away within a, a few years because I know how much teams privately can't stand it. You know, the general managers and the managers, I think, would prefer to have the players in their camps 
um, you know, players who they're paying. Um, but I think in the end, uh, it's becoming standard operating procedure for players to participate. And I think it'll be a great celebration of baseball. It is going to be a great celebration of baseball. That's what it was intended to do, to drum up interest for the sport, both at home and abroad. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen. We are at the point now where the WBC has been around for almost 20 years. And we're at the point where marquee players want to play. And there's genuine fan interest. You look at some of the rosters of these teams, and they are absolutely stacked. There is real pride. There is real desire. There is real hunger. There's real interest. And yes, it is going to be a great showcase of baseball. Different styles of baseball, different fan bases of baseball. It's something that the sport needs. I get why executives hate it. I get why managers hate it. I get why fans are nervous about it, right? I don't want my favorite team's pitcher getting hurt at the World Baseball Classic, and that's certainly possible. But overall, the sport needs it. The sport needs this kind of energy, this kind of infusion, and this kind of star power. We talk about the All-Star game being a great showcase of the sport. The World Baseball Classic rosters are several All-Star teams that are playing over the course of a two- or three-week period. This is, this is going to be some of the best talent in the world altogether. I mean, the Dominican roster, Julio Rodriguez, Juan Soto, Manny Machado, Jose Ramirez, Vlad Jr., Rafi Devers, that's just a few. Puerto Rican team, Javi Baez, Francisco Lindor, Carlos Correa, Edwin Diaz. Team USA, Mike Trout, Clayton Kershaw, Mookie Betts, Trey Turner. Japan has, has Otani playing. The field is incredible. It is going to be a great showcase for baseball. Almost 20 years in, it's hard to believe, man. I remember back in 2006 sitting in, an, in the office of my JV baseball team or my JV baseball coach watching the first World Baseball Classic. I remember that. That was, that was 20 years ago. I was like 15 years old. 2006. Okay, 17 years ago. And now... We're at the point where the fans are interested. There's some real buzz about it. It's being covered in the media. There are people dedicated to the World Baseball Classic, and the top players want to play. And, yes, this has this will have way more interest than your average Dodgers-Diamondbacks spring training game or Mariners-Padres or split squad where the Red Sox play, the, play the, uh, the Twins on one field and the Yankees on another. This is going to be good for baseball, and it starts on, I think, March so if you're in, I'm I'm curious at other people's interest in this because as I think about the event I'm gonna watch it I'm trying to figure out how much we're gonna talk about it here on DEV like are you interested in the World Baseball Classic we have some time to make decisions on what we talk about on this show but I just want to know if you're as interested in it as I am because it's your show as much as it is mine Brady Farkas show here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEV radio.com we are 25 minutes away or so from high school basketball. Let's get to who's saying what. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? Well, they have an expensive but totally unimpressive receiving core, and they have at absolute best, at most charitable, the ninth best quarterback in their own conference. They really said that? Every damn thing is politics and race, and I'm losing my mind over it. It's time for Who's Saying What on The Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. 
You know, I talk about the Red Sox being far off from contention. Well, former Patriots linebacker and Super Bowl champion Ted Johnson thinks they are also really, really far off. If I'm a Patriots fan, I'm just I'm I'm more worried today. I'm not feeling much better because I, I look at Miami. Oh my gosh, if Tua stays healthy, you know what that offense uh, could look like. I mean, the Jets are a quarterback away. Um, you know, and the Bills are are the Bills. So I, I just don't I don't I didn't watch this weekend and think, oh yeah, the Patriots are close. It, it, to me, it's it's they're they're as far as they've they've ever been. Do you think the Patriots are really far off, like Ted Johnson does? 802 585 3026. I will say this. One, the Patriots are that far off from being a Super Bowl team. They are not close to that. But two, they are not far off from being a consistent playoff team and a team that can win playoff games. Right? They are in they, they can easily, I think, get to that second tier. They're not in the first tier. They're far away from the first tier. But that second tier of teams that can get to the playoffs, that can be consistently interesting in the playoffs, they're they're not that far away from that. Okay, The goal is to be a Super Bowl team. I'm well aware of that. I want them to get there too. Re- but being a regular playoff team, that to them is pretty attainable. That to them is pretty attainable. Um, all right. Let's start with the first point. Why are the Patriots far off from being a Super Bowl team? Simply put, they don't have a star-driven roster, right? In order to get to Super Bowl caliber, that top tier, you need to have a multitude of stars, and the Patriots don't. You look around the teams that are left. There's eight teams left in the NFL playoffs. For the most part, they are star-driven rosters. Jacksonville is not. And the Giants are not. But beyond that, the other teams are, particularly a quarterback. Right? Those those six those other six teams that aren't Jacksonville and the Giants, those rosters are fortified up and down with stars. The Patriots, they don't have, they aren't even close to that. Kansas City has a star quarterback, a star tight end, and a star head coach in Andy Reid. Patriots don't have that. They have a star head coach, but they don't have the star quarterback. They don't have Travis Kelsey. The Bengals have a star quarterback. They have two top wide receivers. They have a very good running back. They have a star on defense in Jesse Bates. They have Sam Hubbard. They are loaded with stars. The Bills have a star quarterback, a star wide receiver, a great defensive back, a star safety in Jordan Poyer. If Micah Hyde was playing, they'd have him too. The Bills are star-driven. The Eagles have a star wide receiver in A.J. Brown, an emerging star in Jalen Hurts, multiple very good to star invested uh, investments in defensive players. Dallas, Dak, we can debate whether he's a star, but I, it's no debate that Micah Parsons is a star and C.D. Lamb is a star and Trevon Diggs is a playmaker. He may not be a great corner, but he is a playmaker who makes star-type plays. And the 49ers have stars everywhere. Okay, you talk about getting in that top group The Patriots are not close to that. They have one star, and that's Matthew Judon. They don't have a star at quarterback. They don't have a star at receiver. They don't have a star back. They don't have a star DB. They don't have anything star-like other than Matthew Judon. The Super Bowl favorites? you The Super Bowl favorites? Cincy, KC, Buffalo, and the 49ers? They are loaded with stars. 
Patriots are not in that not in that group. But the Patriots are not far off from being a regular playoff contender. They are not far from that. The NFL, come on, is built to be a turnaround quickly league. The schedule is designed for teams to flip from worst to first in a year. You're just you're always just a few moves away from being a playoff team in the NFL. You're multiple moves away from being a Super Bowl team, but in terms of being playoff relevant, you are always just a few moves away, and the same is true for the Patriots. Right? Jacksonville got natural development from Trevor Lawrence. They made a move to get a good head coach, a couple of free agent signings, a wide receiver like Christian Kirk. Boom, playoff team. Right? Relevant. They won a playoff game. The Giants hired the right coaching staff, helped get the best out of Daniel Jones, drafted well in getting Kayvon Thibodeau, you know, and some others. Boom. Playoff team. Won a game. The Seahawks nailed their draft selections. Made a savvy move at quarterback to get rid of Russ and go get uh go get, you know, keep Geno Smith around. Boom. Playoff team. Now the Vikings had more talent than all those teams initially, but they go get the right head coach and the right offensive coach and play caller and Kevin O'Connell, boom, playoff team. So a lot of teams that were just average last year or bad last year, couple of quick fix moves, and boom, they're in the playoffs. That can be the Patriots also. If we're talking about the Patriots getting into that 6 through 12 group in the NFL power rankings, they are not far off from there. Getting into one through five, yeah, that's not, they're not there yet. They're not close. I'm with Ted Johnson on that. But getting into the dance, being a part of the tournament and doing it fairly regularly, I believe that they can get there, right? Get the right offensive coordinator. That's the most important thing. Couple of moves in free agency. They need to solidify the line. They need to solidify the wide receiver position. Couple of good picks in the draft. Even as bad as the Patriots were this year, they were just one game out of the playoffs. They were one game away from the playoffs this year, despite how awful and dysfunctional they were. They rectified the stuff that made them dysfunctional, and they can be a playoff team consistently. Tex says, it's still football season for some of us. The World Baseball Classic can wait. Well, yes, of course, but I'm saying in March, do you want the World Baseball Classic to be talked about? Uh Alex in Moncton says the Patriots are two to three starting caliber offensive linemen and offensive coordinator away from being competitive. I, I would say that's fairly close. As far as being competitive, the Patriots need a, a reworked offensive line. That's true. They have a center in David Andrews. They have a guard in Cole Strange. Michael Wenu was pretty good at, at the other, you know, one of the other offensive line spots. So really, they need two offensive linemen. Right, The two tackle spots, I would say, are their biggest need offensive line-wise. I think they also need the offensive coordinator, which Alex says, and we've talked about, and they need a really good wide receiver. Okay, I heard names today. Maybe that's trading for T. Higgins. Maybe that's trading for Keenan Allen. Maybe that's drafting the kid from Ohio State, uh, Jackson Najingba. So maybe it's that. But I think they need a star wide receiver. And then they need help other places, right? Linebacker, defensive back, pass rusher, like most teams do. But as far as being competitive, Patriots are just a handful of moves away. Getting to the Super Bowl level, that that's going to take a lot, especially when they're as limited at quarterback as I believe they are. And I believe Mac Jones is limited. 
802-585-3026. Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line is open. On the Patriots, we know officially they are going to Germany next season for a regular season game. We don't know who they're playing yet, but process of elimination, I've got a fairly good idea of who it might be. I'll tell you that next here on the Brady Farkas Show on DEB. The text line at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEV Radio. We'll get you out to high school basketball in just a few minutes here as it is girls hoops tonight between Harwood and Montpelier. Brent Curtis already sitting courtside, and the JV game is coming to a conclusion. You can get in on the Napa-Morrisville-Napa-Waterbury text line at 802-585-3026. That's your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. So we had speculated on it. It was pretty clear it was going to happen, but today it officially got announced that the Patriots are going to play a regular season game in Germany next year now the nfl schedule doesn't come out for several months but i've narrowed down who they will play in germany to just a few teams okay so all of the international hosts got announced right there's gonna be two germany games and three london games the germany games will be hosted by the patriots they'll be the home team in one the chiefs will be the home team in the other The London games will be hosted by Jacksonville, Tennessee, and Buffalo. Now, if you notice, all of those teams are AFC teams. That's important because the AFC next year has the ninth home game. So now the Patriots will have eight home games, eight, you know, eight true home games, eight road games, and then the Germany game, which will count as a home game, but will effectively be a neutral site game. So all of the games are being hosted by AFC teams. So let's start narrowing down, process of elimination, who the Patriots will be playing in their Germany game. And all it takes is a little detective work. So we know it won't be Buffalo. One, they're in the division. The NFL is not going to put divisional games overseas. But Buffalo's playing a London game, so they're not going to go over twice. So it definitely won't be Buffalo. So of nine home opponents now we're already instantly down to eight eight other choices it won't be miami and it won't be the jets because it won't be a divisional game so now we're down three possibilities so now we're down to six possible teams the patriots play the chiefs at home well the chiefs are hosting a germany game of their own so they're not going to go twice so that's going to knock us down to five possibilities so uh we're already down to just let's see we've already eliminated the Bills, the Dolphins, the Jets, and the Chiefs. So we've eliminated four possibilities. We're down to five. Let's look at the remaining five and see what we think. The Patriots play the Eagles and Washington at home this year. I don't think the NFL would do that. It's my guess the NFL would want those games in Foxborough. The proximity to each other, the... Long time standing of those franchises. It would be a really good environment to have on American soil, I think. I think it would make for a good rivalry thing there to see Philly and Boston and Foxborough fans come together. So I don't think the Eagles or Washington are an option 
for the Patriots to play. So that's going to get me down to three possibilities. And I think any of these three could happen. One is the Chargers, who the Patriots play at home. One is the Saints. And the other is the Colts. Those are the three remaining home games. I think that the Patriots will play one of those three in their Germany game. Now, I don't want it to be the Chargers. I think the NFL might do it, though. Okay? You look at it. This year, when the when, when the NFL sent teams to Germany, they sent Seattle and Tampa. Seattle and Tampa are about as far away from each other as you can get. I think Seattle had like a seven-hour longer flight than Tampa. For competitive purposes, I didn't really think that was fair. The same thing would be at play if it was the Chargers and the Patriots. Hopefully the NFL has learned from their mistake. And I don't think the NFL cares much about competitive integrity. You look at the way they do other things on their schedule. So they may send the Chargers, but I hope they don't. As much as I want the Patriots to win, I don't think it would be fair to have one team go all the way from Los Angeles and the other team come from almost the Atlantic Ocean. The Chargers would have a six- or seven-hour long, much longer flight than the Patriots. That doesn't seem right to me. So it could be the Chargers. It would, you know, you send Justin Herbert over there, good-looking guy, young guy, one of the young faces of the league. Chargers are fun. That that could happen. I don't think that it should but it could. So now I'm kind of thinking it's going to be, it should be the Colts or the Saints. And frankly, I think it should be the Saints. It's a cross-conference matchup. It doesn't matter as much when you talk about things like playoff tiebreakers, etc., record against the AFC. I, I think the Saints make the most sense. But I do think it will be one of the Chargers, the Saints, or the Colts. 802-585-3026. Texer says, can they play Dallas over there? No, they, they can't because they're playing Dallas on the road. So that's why. Uh, Alex at Moncton says, Mac Jones is limited by the offensive line and poor play calling, just like Daniel Jones was. It's amazing that when Jones got competent line play and a good play caller, he started to show his skill set. Mac Jones showed last year he had ability and it was stifled by Patricia and Judge. I, I agree with a lot of that, and and I don't know if the texture was listening on Monday, and it's fine if you weren't, but I said the Giants should be a great deal of optimism for the Patriots, right? Daniel Jones was left for dead in his career. The Giants didn't even pick up his fifth-year option. He gets Brian Dable. He gets a competent play caller, and yeah, the Giants took off, and Daniel Jones took off, and the Giants don't have great weapons. They have Saquon, but they don't have anything to write home about on the outside. They don't have a special tight end to write home about. So really, the only difference was the coaching. So as a Patriot fan, you should feel good that if you just fix the coaching, you can do some pretty special things in the NFL. That is a realistic possibility. The Patriots could be next year's Giants just by virtue of finding a good coach. The difference, I will say, is Daniel Jones is far more mobile than Mac. Right, Daniel Jones has a part of his has a skill set that Mac Jones does not possess. Now, the Patriots have better skill players as we stand than the Giants do. I think they could go out and get even better skill players, so you could put more work on them as opposed to you know how Daniel Jones had to do a lot of it himself. But I, I think the Giants are a very fair comp for the Patriots, and I think the the Patriots should give 
or the Giants should give the Patriots a lot of optimism. And I think the Patriots can easily get into that next group, that 6 through 12 playoff group. I just don't think, I think they're too far away from being a Super Bowl contender. Um, Texter says, this is Matt in St. Albans, the Colts don't profile to be very good. Do they really want to give Germany that game in a showcase? Look, early, we didn't think Seattle was going to be very good, right? The NFL gave Germany Geno Smith against Tom Brady. So I don't know that the NFL looks at it that way. No, the Colts don't profile to be good. At least, you know, again, pre-free agency, pre-draft, and they haven't even hired a head coach yet. But if you go on this year, the Colts aren't very good. But next year could be completely different. Again, the league is designed for you to turn things around. Uh, Lou in Jeffersonville, the league doesn't care about competitive integrity, so I could see the Chargers being the Patriots' opponent. I, I, I know that. That's what I, I. That's why I could see the Chargers being the opponent, too. Again, Herbert going overseas. The Chargers are a playoff team from this year. That would be profile to be a good game. I could see it happening. I just don't want it to happen. I just don't want it to happen. I, like, I don't think that that's right to the Chargers. I think the Patriots would have a massive advantage. And as much as I'm in favor of the Patriots having advantages, I looking impartially at it, I don't think that they should. So I think it should be the Saints. It's all speculation. It's all fun. And we'll get the schedule in a couple of months. But I would not do Washington or the Eagles. I would keep those games here. I think those games will mean more here than they would over there. Patriots, Saints, Patriots, Colts, Patriots, Chargers. Those all feel like international games. But uh, there you go. It's the Brady Farkas Show on DEV. Uh, real quick, as we end the show today, reminder, the full interview with Buster Olney available on our podcast channel. The full show will be also available on our podcast channel. Celtics-Warriors tonight. I'm looking forward to that matchup. It's a finals rematch. Celtics were killed by Golden State when they played them in Golden State. Jalen Brown still listed as questionable tonight. As, uh, you know, we are now 50 minutes away from game time. So, you know, don't know if he'll play. I, I just want to see the Celtics mentally be right in this game. They looked out of it against the Warriors when they played in Golden State. Like, they were trying to avenge all four finals losses in one game. They can't put a premium on this game. They just seem to come out and play, play well. They've had a couple of days off. And uh, hopefully the Celtics can put a good performance out. We'll talk more about that game tomorrow. UVM Hoops is taking on uh, Maine tonight at Patrick Gym. We will talk about that game tomorrow as well. And Elisa Kresge, the UVM women's, uh, UVM women's basketball coach, will stop by also. That's it for us here on the Brady Farkas Show. High school basketball is coming up next. It's girls high school hoops from Montpelier, the home of the Solons, as they take on Harwood and our own Brent Curtis is on the call, standing by courtside. We'll get you out there after these words. Here on the Friendly Pioneer, WDEV, AM and FM. I'll see you tomorrow, everybody. Drive safe, by the way. Do drive safe. We know the snow is coming in. Wherever you're going, get there safely. Now I'll see you tomorrow.